Chapter Eleven of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter Eleven. The fire in Mrs. Redmond's sitting room burned cheerfully, casting flickering shadows upon the brass andirons and crackling sociably. It was a fire to invite easy chairs and confidences, or, if one happened to be alone, to sit beside and dream, for there were pictures in it and castles in the air round about if one cared to look for them. The mistress of the room sat in a low chair, her hands clasped idly in her lap, and the tip of her slipper upon the fender. She was one of the few people capable of absolute inaction, and had been sitting motionless for the past hour, her head resting upon the silk cushion at the back of her chair, and her eyes partly closed, as though the dark lashes were too heavy for the white lids they fringed, and had weighed them down. She was a study for an artist as she sat there in the dusk of the short winter's day, with the firelight casting its ruddy glow upon the rich folds of her gown and reflecting itself in the dark, polished floor. A casual observer would doubtless have labelled the picture repose, but if one looked again, one could detect a tired expression about the mouth, and a reluctant expectancy in the whole attitude, the reverse of restful. The clock on the mantel chimed, and she frowned a little. "'A half-hour late,' she said aloud as the door opened, and Count Vladimir entered quietly. "'I thought I would announce myself,' he remarked as he crossed the room. It was not too much of a liberty in an old friend, was it? Mrs. Redmond moved the glass screen, which lay in her lap, and held it between her face and the fire. I said four o'clock, she remarked abruptly. It is now half past. I apologize, he returned. The delay was unavoidable. May I sit down? She bowed distantly. You were dreaming when I came in, he resumed. You used to dream away whole days in Berlin, I remember. A habit is like a perfume. It clings to one. I was not dreaming, she interrupted sharply. I was thinking of you. I am flattered, madame. They spoke in French, a language in which both were proficient, and their words were chosen with care. I was wondering, she continued slowly, if you had a heart. A heart? said Count Vladimir reflectively, is the instrument by means of which our blood is circulated. We all possess them, do we not? She moved impatiently, and he bent forward that he might see her face. I have a heart, madame, he said quietly, although I have but lately become aware of the fact myself. Shall I tell you how I know? It does not interest me, she returned coldly. A servant entered, replenished the fire, and noiselessly withdrew. Count Vladimir watched him in silence, and smiled skeptically. "'So,' he said, when they were again alone, "'a daughter of Eve, yet not curious. Is that not an anomaly?' "'It is only the unsophisticated who are curious,' returned Mrs. Redmond slowly. When one has actually tasted the apple, one's teeth are set on edge forever. It is so sour. You speak bitterly, madame. Perhaps so, Count Vladimir. 
Again he leaned forward that he might see her face more clearly. "'Tell me,' he said after a long pause, "'do you ever live the old days over in memory, or is the past dead as well as buried?' "'It is not even buried,' she replied. "'It rises from the grave I dug for it and follows me everywhere.' "'Then you sometimes think of Berlin?' "'Often, Count.' "'With regret?' "'With deep regret.' I, too, madame, regret my lost opportunities. Like you, I wish I might live that part of my life over again. Do not misunderstand me, said Mrs. Redmond distinctly. My regret is not that the old days are gone, but that they ever existed at all. You are happy, yes? he said interrogatively. I scarcely suppose, she returned indifferently, you asked for this interview simply to discuss my happiness or misery. I presume you want something. What is it? I want to know, he said deliberately, why you failed to keep your appointment on Thursday evening. You do know, Count Vladimir. But not enough. You started and lost your way. You also lost the colonel from the nut, as it were. A curious coincidence, and one worthy of much thought. They were lost, I tell you, lost, she whispered hoarsely. Even as the Khedive's opals were lost, he returned slowly. Mrs. Redmond caught the back of a chair and steadied herself against it. Count Vladimir, she said with a visible effort at self-control, I cannot allow you to insult me in my own house. You will apologize for your insinuation at once, if you please. I think— he replied with an unpleasant laugh, that Mrs. Redmond has lived so long in Washington she is inclined to forget Berlin. She put her finger on the electric bell in the wall beside her. I am not afraid of you, Count, she said quietly. Not yet, at least. You are too wise a man to throw away a tool before it has served its purpose. If I touch this button, I will tell my servants to show you out and not admit you again. Shall I ring? Madame, he returned with a slight bow, when you are angry you are superb. I apologize. Mrs. Redmond resumed her chair and again took possession of the glass screen. I have told you all I know, she said coldly after a long pause. There are almost as many kinds of silence as there are types of humanity, and while nothing is more soothing and delightful than the prolonged quiet of real camaraderie, it is equally true that nothing is more exhausting than the silence of distrust or contempt. The little French clock on the mantel ticked rapidly as though hurrying time away, and the fire blazed merrily, sending an occasional spark over the fender and out into the room, while the winter's day waned and the twilight deepened. "'Is there anything else?' finally inquired Mrs. Redmond, without turning her head. Count Vladimir carefully extinguished a spark which had fallen upon the rug and lay smoldering there. "'Yes, madame,' he said slowly, "'there is something more. I earnestly desire an appointment for a friend.' "'An appointment?' "'A temporary clerkship in the Department of State. The man is old and poor, a worthy charity.' "'A friend of yours,' she said, with a short laugh, "'and a worthy charity?' "'Even so, madame.' "'It could be arranged, I suppose,' she said unwillingly, "'if it is absolutely necessary.' 
I would not ask it otherwise, madame. Mrs. Redmond went to her desk and produced a small memorandum book. Be good enough to give me his name and address, she said briefly. I do not promise this appointment, but I will make a note of it. His name, madame, is Joseph Sanders. He lives at Jackson City, a small town in Virginia. Joseph Sanders, she repeated as she wrote it down, an excellent alias, non-committal and respectable. I think, Count, I will be obliged to know a little more about Mr. Sanders before I interest myself in his behalf. He watched her enter the name and raised his eyebrows slightly as she spoke. I think not, madame, he said confidently. Your naturally kind heart will prompt you to assist the needy without making useless inquiries concerning them. In the course of the next few weeks my friend will be installed, I am sure. He is, by the way, an American by birth. And by adoption what? A man without a country, madame, there are many such wanderers. Mrs. Redmond returned the book to her desk and faced her companion. You received my invitation to dinner? This morning only. I shall, of course, accept. I thought you would. Force of circumstances obliged me to ask you, your official position, and my husband's, you understand? I was not unduly flattered by the attention, he returned dryly. The dinner, continued Mrs. Redmond, speaking slowly and distinctly, is given for the new British attaché, Mr. Lyndhurst. Count Vladimir had risen and was standing with his back to the fireplace, watching her every movement closely. She drew a long-stemmed rose from the vase upon the desk, and crossed the room towards him, moving with a languid grace peculiarly her own, the flower hanging loosely from her hand, and her small head held proudly erect. Resuming the low chair before the fire, she slowly lifted the rose and inhaled its perfume, then looked directly at her companion, undeniable challenge in her blue eyes. "'The dinner,' she repeated, is given for Mr. Lyndhurst. The ticking of the little clock seemed obtrusively loud as the man and woman gazed at each other in silence. He bent forward eagerly that he might see her face more distinctly in the gathering dusk, and the pupils of his eyes dilated strangely, a sudden, passionate light replacing their usual calm coldness. With an involuntary movement he stooped over her, his quick breath stirring the loose tendrils of hair about her ears. "'Estelle,' he murmured softly, "'Estelle.' The blue eyes widened as they gazed helplessly up at him, as though fascinated, a blank, baffled expression gradually replacing their first angry surprise. Count Vladimir was speaking again, speaking hurriedly, his incoherent words crowding rapidly upon one another, and his face coming gradually closer as his voice grew lower, and his pulses throbbed painfully. And Mrs. Redmond was listening, listening with a curious sense of remote unreality, and the trembling stillness with which a bird watches the cat who, having charmed it, prepares to spring. "'You shall not be troubled,' he was saying. "'I can shield you if you will let me.' Estelle, I have wanted you always, do you understand? Always. She made an effort to rise, but he put her gently back. You need not fear Lyndhurst, he continued breathlessly. With me you need fear no one. I want you, star of the world, I want you. 
Mrs. Redmond shook off his restraining hand and sprang to her feet. How dare you! she gasped. How dare you! With unsteady fingers she switched on the electric light and pointed to the door. Count Vladimir took out his handkerchief and mopped his forehead. The pupils of his eyes contracted as suddenly as they had expanded, and the eyes themselves resumed their habitually keen expression. "'Perhaps it is well, madame,' he said, alluding to the light. The situation was becoming somewhat strained. Mrs. Redmond tried to speak, but her lips refused to articulate. She was very pale, and her eyes glittered ominously. "'Let us discuss the question coolly.' he remarked, stooping to pick up the red rose which had fallen to the floor. I offer you absolute security, peace of mind, safety, what you will. In return I ask, what? A few sugar plums, a kiss now and then perhaps, nothing more than men have asked of you before, madame, if my memory serves me rightly. She pressed the button in the wall beside her without replying. It is a small price to pay for safety he continued. I am better as your friend than your enemy, madame. I can be merciless when it serves my purpose. I know, she said slowly, I know. I hold your happiness in the hollow of my hand. You are brave, madame. You possess courage few men can boast. I admire it, but it will avail you nothing if I elect to speak. I have done all you asked, she said mechanically. Not quite all, madame. Somehow you have bungled. It is not in your nature to fail, therefore I am suspicious. What I told you is true, Count Vladimir, I swear it. He moved impulsively forward and seized her hands. I want you to be happy, he said softly. It's such a small thing I ask, only a few caresses, only an occasional moment out of your life. How little! Kiss me, Estelle, and promise what I ask. Kiss me now, yourself, and the slate is sponged clean. Come to me, star of the world, and be at rest. He dropped her hands hastily as the door opened and retreated a few paces, pulling to pieces the red rose and breathing heavily. James, said Mrs. Redmond, to the footman who stood awaiting orders, Count Vladimir is going. Show him out. And said James, later in the butler's pantry, in indignant narrative. When I handed him his hat, most respectful and polite, he up and cussed me, that's what he done. End of chapter 11